You're listening to Career Up Now, a socially distanced close-ups podcast. I'm your host, Bradley Caro Cook. Today, we're joined by Lisa Greer, who is a very dear friend, philanthropist, author, and entrepreneur. So it's safe to say that she's a woman of many chapters. She's been heavily involved with Career Up Now for the, from the beginning, and I'm just thrilled to have you here. Lisa, welcome. So, Lisa, it's a real pleasure to have you join us for Socially Distanced Close-Up. We've had a nice personal and professional relationship since I first moved to Los Angeles in 2016. And you were one of the first people that really welcomed me into the city and into your home and have really enhanced uh, my personal and professional life. So I'm so incredibly thankful for you and to Joshua and your whole family for really being so welcoming to myself. And I know that you, and I'm not special, like you do this for everyone. So it's really a pleasure to interview you. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, and you are special. And we are so pleased that everything's come so far. I appreciate that. So tell me, you were an entertainment leader, starting off leading really the digital space going back quite a few years ago. Now you're in the space of philanthropy, and it's evolved over the years from being an entrepreneur. When you first started out, did you envision that you'd be in the position that you are in today? Well, when I first started out, meaning at what point? Like when I first started working, or was I first an adult, or when we first had money? In those times, I envisioned it. I I guess I would say the answer is no in all cases, but I never thought that we'd have money like that, so and be able to be a philanthropist, that seemed like a big word. But And then once we were, did I think that I would be able to speak for how to make that industry better? Um, absolutely not. I, it took me a long time to learn how it worked and observed. So tell me, because you're a woman of many chapters and different chapters. How did your early media days, and that's an incredibly grinding and exhausting and long working hours industry. How did that prepare you for where you are now? That's a good question. I think that the media industry is, is a lot about networking. It's a lot about understanding and knowing different people. It's a lot about relationships. And it's a lot about also working within system. Being working at a studio is very different than working at a small production company. And you have to learn that there are systems that have been there for a long time and cultures that have been there for a long time. And it's important to understand that In my case, I want to change everything right away, and that doesn't really work so well in big, giant corporations. Having said that, it did teach me that if you kind of make a left turn or you look for opportunities that aren't, that everybody else isn't working on, you can actually be more successful that way. Uh, So there are ways of making a difference, but you can't follow the leader and do things the same way. So I think that was a big lesson. I mean, it's really impressive because in the short time period, number of years that we've known each other, I've always seen you as an incredibly strong, empowered figure, whether it's in local city government, whether it's in your home while you're having guests, or whether it's pushing uh, social entrepreneurs and leaders of nonprofit organizations to do better, to understand deeper, to be more vulnerable. I remember a conversation that we had at Factors in Los Angeles, where you said to me, and it was, it took me a little back. You said to me, you're something along the lines of you're 
not everything can always be perfect. Like your life can't be so Pollyanna-ish. You come into the city, everything's great. You kind of take it, I took it by storm. And you're like, you have to be vulnerable because people really want to get to know you. What was that piece of wisdom that you shared with me about vulnerability? Like how did, how did the importance of that come into your life and, and also sharing it with others? Well, it's, an, it's a really interesting point, and I'd forgotten about that. That directly relates to my book, and it directly relates to how I feel about teaching philanthropy now. And that's that people want to believe that the person who they're talking to, anybody they have a relationship with is real and is multidimensional, and they want to know good, bad, and ugly. They don't want to know, if they know everything on sort of a flat scale, that everything is, everything's great all the time, it's sort of, there's not a lot of meat there, and it's not that interesting. So the same thing happens with, with philanthropy, and that's what I was saying to you, when someone's new in town and they're doing that and you don't really know them, so you haven't heard, oh, this person's one-dimensional and doesn't talk about anything, you just don't know the person and everything feels like it's all perfect, lovely, wonderful, then you, you maybe that's a Hollywood thing, I don't know, but then you are inclined to distrust that person. You just don't believe that that's not possible because people aren't like that. So, so the same is true in philanthropy, uh, in fundraising. If the fundraiser says, Oh, you are wonderful. You look so great. Oh, this is so wonderful. Oh, you just, it's such, so nice to have this meeting today. And oh, this is just great. And all you're thinking on the other end as a donor is you just want my money. And you're just saying this because you can't possibly like, who are you really like? And they don't even show it at all. They don't even show a dimension. They just show like, I'm going through the script. It's really unnerving and you don't feel comfortable giving money to that person to give to that organization because it just doesn't feel real. And then you don't trust it. And the biggest problem in philanthropy today, if you look at lots and lots of different pieces of research, is that donors don't trust charities. It's gotten better during COVID, a lot better. But in general, for many, many years, there's just not a feeling of, you know, it's funny because the uh, fundraisers will say, well, we just want to have a relationship. We go and we sit down with these people and we have a relationship. Well, relationship is an interesting word because saying, oh, you look just great. This is so wonderful. Oh, right. You know, we really love to... That is not a relationship, and it's not a relationship with, between you and me or anybody else of my friends, and it's not a relationship with a fundraiser. So in order to have a real relationship, you actually do have to be vulnerable, and you have to tell a little bit about yourself. And if people won't do that, then I think it is a natural next step to say, you might just say, you might not, it might not be trust. You might just say, I feel kind of creepy about that person, or it just doesn't feel right. Um, but you also might say, I don't trust that person because I think they have ulterior motives. And in fundraising, very often they do have an ulterior motive, which is they want to get your money. But it is much better from their point of view and from, from helping the future of nonprofits to have the fundraiser actually want to be a little vulnerable, want to establish the trust with the other person, because not only will they get the money right now, but they'll get the money long term. You brought up so many good points and just ideas and thoughts and questions are just going off in, off in my head. A couple of them, one of them to keep that I think about from what you just shared is openness. This idea of opening oneself, the idea of opening one's checkbook, the idea of opening one's home. And you've really, as a philanthropist, put yourself out there. You've pushed against the, the status quo when it comes to donor-advised funds. You've pushed against like how individuals interact with potential donors. And at the same time as pushing, you've also opened your home to the world of nonprofits hosting 
dozens, if not close to a hundred gatherings a year with your own personal network to spread that. How do you know when to push and when to pull and when to push hard and when to open wide? Interesting. Well, the first thing I, I really want to say is thank you, because when I had the Donor Advised Fund pushing back thing, you were there for me when I was a little bit hysterical. So thank you very much for that. And, and I feel very fortunate that I've been able to find a publisher and distribution and be able to tell that story to now, hopefully, hundreds of thousands of people, whoever's going to buy the book. So that, and also, I'm doing a lot of interviews like this. And so uh, hopefully, people won't have to go through the same thing that I had to go through. There is some definitely give and take about uh, having people in your home. Uh, there were some questions about, you know, aren't you nervous? And what if you have, you know, people in the home that, that in your home that, that you don't want to have in your home? And yet I wanted, I didn't want to have a whole uh, uh, heterogeneous group of, heterogeneous group of people in my house that, that we weren't going to be able to have a conversation because everybody thought the same way. So, so that was interesting. I tried a few different times. We created some ground rules. And along the way, there were one or two people that we had to say, you know what, this just isn't a fit for you to come back to these events. And these are for your audience, these are salons with between 30 and 50, 100 people who came to listen to various speakers and learn. And then the push and pull with the checkbook is, I think it's back to what I said before about trust and finding people who have integrity and organizations that are honest and, and really deciding that, you know what, it doesn't really matter if they push me really hard, if I don't believe in not only the cause, which is important, but also the person who I'm talking to, if I don't believe that they have a gut feeling about and really feel in their soul a passion for the organization that they're promoting, then I just don't want to give to them. So that's, that's where that kind of push and pull happens. I love how you left that with the checkbook because it leads right to my next question. There was a time when you and your husband were down to one of your last checks in your checkbook and you looked at your bank account and it was in that like make it or break it time period financially speaking, before you became philanthropists. Yeah. Now, when you open your checkbook, it's a, it's a much different space. What feelings or emotions, or can you describe that contrast between being in a place of concern or scarcity and, and now yeah. being in a place of plenty? First of all, it's interesting hearing you talk about checkbooks because people don't use checkbooks much anymore. Uh, I rarely use a checkbook and I, I'm trying to teach my, remind myself and teach other people to say, you know, open your checkbook because to a lot of people, especially millennials, but a lot of just people who do everything online, they don't have a checkbook. So it becomes meaningless. So if you say, open your checkbook and give to this organization, you don't have a checkbook, then that's like saying, don't give me money. So it's sort of a funny thing. But I think that the reason I've been able to write the book and the reason I'm able to help people is because I, I didn't grow up with money. I didn't have anybody teaching me how to do this. I came with a background in business and a background with really honestly living paycheck to paycheck. So when people say to me, oh, I, donors are a different species of people. Donors are different. They act different. Like, no, I'm just me. I've been me for a lot of years. And for 10 years, I've been able to be a philanthropist. And before that, I would give where I was able to give. And then other times I wasn't. And I would ask to volunteer. And, and one of kind of personal stories is I used to go to organizations and say, I have a lot to offer you. I can offer you a lot of business assistance. I can offer you connections, but I can't offer you money because I don't have money. And I was not treated so well. Usually it was, oh, well, yeah, but like the, vo and, and this is one of the things I discovered is that the volunteers are sort of in most organizations over on this side and the donors are on this side and they don't really want the two to meet. 
which is insane now that I can look at it and talk about it because most of the people who are really attached to an organization are the volunteers. And to assume that because you're a volunteer, you don't have money and you will never have money. Well, I guess I am a poster child for that. So, you know, stop. There are people who, who just wouldn't give me the time of day before. Didn't matter if I was, I had a, you know, important job and I was doing okay, was able to buy a house, but we didn't have a lot of excess money at all, really like none. And there were people along the way where I did say to them, I can offer that exact same thing. I can offer you a lot and I want to get involved. And because I didn't have enough dollars after my name, I was not treated well. And so I would like to fix that. So I'm going to push back on you on that one, because I think you raised such an important point. But what would be your advice for nonprofit professionals that have hundreds of individuals that would like to volunteer anything but their money. And then with having fundraising quotas or even in today's COVID times or even outside of them, like being on the place where they they can't make payroll and there's really a lot of pressure in that space. How is it that you advise either in your book or outside nonprofit professionals to have that balance of cultivation with, at the end of the day, raising what they need to raise? So yes, you need to talk to the people that you know have money, but you also need to take a percentage of your time. It's sort of, when people are looking for a job, I used to do career consulting, and I would say to them, you, you need to, they'll say, well, I'm in a job. How can I look for a new job if I'm in a job? And I would say, well, you figure out the hours of your job and you add an hour a day to looking for your new job. And that's a regular piece of your day. So a regular piece of the fundraiser's day needs to be uh, needs to be dealing with the donors that you know, and it also needs to be dealing, a portion of it needs to be, cultivating seems to be a word for me that is, is you have to first be a big donor before you get to be cultivated. I, I don't know that I've ever talked to someone about cultivating a volunteer. That feels like sort of two terms that shouldn't be in the same sentence, but it is what needs to happen. And so spend an hour a week doing it, talking to your volunteers, learn who your volunteers are. And I believe that you will find out that many of your volunteers actually have resources that they don't give because they're they either feel like it's not enough or they don't feel comfortable enough with the organization or they haven't been treated really well. They've been treated as a second class citizen. I really believe that a lot more people have money than you think have money uh, and have resources that, can, that you can give. And, and part of that proof is that every organization I've ever been part of, one of the areas of proof that people have money that you don't realize have money is every single organization I've ever been on the board of I call surprise gifts, but they get a surprise. They get bequests from people who they didn't really know very well uh, every year. Every organization gets them. And some are people that you've expected and you've been sort of working with those people for years, or, or I call them circling the older people, which is not fun. But there's always some where somebody gave money and you say, who is this? Is this really for us? Every organization I know has gotten these. And you've got to think about that. You think, well, like, how did that happen? Like, how did someone decide to give a big chunk of money to this organization. And it's usually somebody who, well, not usually, but it's, there's always some that were not on the list of the people to be interacted with on a regular basis, the people to be cultivated. I would guess almost every year, almost every organization will get some sort of bequest, mid-sized to large organizations, from somebody that was not on their cultivation list, that was a complete surprise. So if those surprises are there and those people are giving, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes more, then you have to say, well, where do they come from? And why was I not cultivating them? And how did they know me and I didn't know them? So that's my point. 
I'm going to ask a question and jump into a, a little bit of an activity since you are maybe someone consider you to be a philanthropic guru, or at least on the influencer path to becoming even more so of one with your new book. So my nonprofit, Career Up Now, who everyone that's listening is probably familiar with Career Up Now, unless they're just hearing it through you, Lisa. But, you know, we create and build intentional communities of emerging professionals and community and industry leaders to form personal and professional connections through mentorship and Jewish wisdom. And one of the things that we've done is we've really relied a lot on technology. So we have a, a process that we call digital onboarding, with which actually both you and, and your husband, Josh, both filled out our mentor advisor form. And one of the questions that we ask or categories is called fueling our efforts, meaning we put it out to the individuals that are joining as mentors or advisors or our community to be able to say that either they're not interested in ever giving to us, maybe later, or like specifically how they want to be involved philanthropically with us, whether that's introducing us to others, personally giving on a monthly or yearly basis, and each of those different pieces. So the place where we are right now as a nonprofit is we have a list of about 800 people, 300 of them have indicated that they would like to introduce us to others. They're in the non maybe later and non category of not interested. And then we probably have another 400 people that are in the maybe later category. And so we already know, so we're not, yes, go ahead. Maybe later to donate, right? Maybe later to donate. Yeah, because they fill this out at the very beginning. How would you imagine as a philanthropist and someone who thinks really fast on their feet, how, how would you approach this overwhelming, what's become an overwhelming task? Because we haven't spent a lot of time asking people for support. And we want to build into that, knowing the people who are already interested in potentially supporting us. So it's interesting. You have these, what do you call this interview program? Socially distanced close-ups. So that is something, obviously, the title conveys that it's happening during COVID. So if we're looking for this later, one of the things that I think is really compelling, uh, and I really only came up with this in the last couple of days, uh, talking to a number of, uh, a lot of people call me for, for advice and different nonprofits. And, and we were thinking very similar kind of thing. What's going to be compelling to get people to donate? And I, I think COVID provides an opportunity just like it does for, for these sessions. But one of the opportunities is most organizations have accomplished something during COVID. Like, while we are saying, oh my gosh, what, did, what are we going to do? Wringing our hands. At this point, we're four months into it. Most organizations have done something positive and have kept going and good things are happening. But nobody seems to be conveying them. And I think it's really interesting when you are, we feel like time is this strange thing and we're at home and we're trying to have a normal life and figuring out what normal is. And if we get something that says our organization career up, we just want to let you know that while all of the world is changing, Career Up has been continuing to move forward, and we have accomplished this, this, and this during this time. I, I would say most people, for example, would think no one's going to get a job during COVID, and Career Up is a big piece is, is people getting jobs. I'm going to guess that somebody in Career Up probably got a job during COVID, and I would want to know that. And maybe a couple of people got jobs during COVID, or somebody got a promotion during COVID, or you raised some more money during COVID for something, or you got created some new program. That is even more meaningful now during COVID than it would have been before in sort of pre-COVID days. 
and it's very, very compelling. So if you hear, no, this organization is not hanging on by their fingernails, hoping to survive and that somebody will give them some money, and instead you're saying, you know what, we sat down, we looked at our resources, we've moved forward, we've figured out creative ways of using technology, and we've achieved these five different things since then, that is like the best thing you could say to them. I think that is incredibly, incredibly compelling and makes somebody want to be part of this organization. And when I say part of that organization, I mean, in this case, for these people, they want to fund something that you're doing. And if you say, hey, we want to do more of that, then I have trust in you because you're telling me, hey, it's been really difficult, but we got ourselves together and we picked ourselves up and we did these great things. That makes me want to trust you. And then if you say, look, despite all of the obstacles, life goes on at Career Up and we are actually helping people and people are actually doing amazing things during COVID. And so that is, and you can add to that something along the lines of, if you, we'd like to do more of this, we'd like to expand it. And here's two things that we want to do in this COVID environment to expand what we're doing and help more people. We feel that we can do this XYZ program or these two programs if we have some funding to do them and we hope that you will consider funding these. That is a really compelling picture and I don't see anybody doing it. So it leads me to a question related to that. Where it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems from what you just described, it's like an email newsletter. How do you vary or how do you decide what is that personal touch with a volunteer, like in our case, a mentor or someone else that has been involved and expressed interest in giving? How do you divide that between I need to have those, I mean, right now, Zoom asks versus just like shooting out a bulk newsletter. So there's a couple of ways you can do it. First of all, I wouldn't do a bulk newsletter. I would do them in as individual emails, or it can be an individual email with a little newsletter attached, but I wouldn't put too much content into it. I think sometimes the email is more personal. It's almost, it doesn't have graphics and all that kind of thing. You could have a video embedded of somebody who got, just got a job through during COVID for career up super, super compelling and kind of grabs your heartstrings. And I think that's great. I do think that you need to parse your list always. I just think parsing a list is part of what you do. So you need to really look at those people. And if you say these all are in this particular category, this is the message that they're likely to have. One of the ideas is to actually parse the list based on, based on age. That seems to work a lot. I don't think it's really ageism, but, but the assumption of what somebody's doing at home is different if you're writing to somebody who's 70 or 80 versus somebody who is 20 or 30. So their lives have been different the last few months because of COVID. And I think you have to acknowledge a little bit of that. And so your letter might be skewed a little bit to that. So you might have your letter going to, you know, distribution or a friend of career up, and it's still sent to a mass. You don't have to write individual emails, but it is parsed. You've skewed your newsletter a little bit based on who your, who your recipient is. So I think that would work. And then you can even say, one of the other things you can do is you can say, we have more good news like this. These are just a few of the things that we've done that we've accomplished in the last four months. We have more success stories like this. We'd love to share them with you. And if you want to then take that next step, then you can say, I'll be in touch in the next few days to see if there's a time when maybe we can discuss it and I can tell you about some of that. Or you can say, even make it on them. If you'd like to know more about this, we'd love to share it with you. Uh, give me a call and we can do a short conversation. And then you can find out more about how they are. One of the things that I am asking every nonprofit to do during COVID is start every email with some version of, I hope you're well and your family is well, or I hope you're doing well during this difficult time. That's back to that trust thing. If you are tone deaf and you don't acknowledge that you're in the midst of COVID and that people are in a weird time right now, then they are automatically not going to trust you. I love how you just drop wisdom. 
I'm always impressed with the frequency at which you release your newsletter, Philanthropy 451, which is excellent. I get it in my email box a few times a month, sometimes more. And every time it just seems to be serendipitous because it's something that like I needed to hear at that time. What's made you beyond your book, which is a great book and it's going to make a big difference, but it's easier for people to sign up for a newsletter than make it through a book. How do people sign up for your newsletter? So it's just philanthropy451.com. And hopefully most people know that that is a reference. The reason I'm doing this is because it's philanthropy is on fire. It's a reference to Fahrenheit 451. We have had a few people who didn't understand that. And I guess be buying my book, but oh well. But philanthropy 451 is, I believe philanthropy is on fire and, and we need to save it. And so saving giving is my Twitter feed, which I also put some very quick things on. But the newsletter, I do write timely and it does come out at least once a week. During COVID, I felt that I had a bunch of them saved up and I felt that it, things were moving so fast and people were in such trouble that I actually put them out every two or three days, which was hard because I was dealing with my own world and changes too. But now we try and do it every week, 10 days at the most, something like that. And I do try to make them topical to what's going on in the world now. So you'll see that the letters now, and if somebody wants to go back and look at them, I've been doing them for about a year. And the newsletters now make an assumption that you're in the middle of COVID and talk about that. Where the ones early on were, hey, it's a shock. We're going to get through this, that kind of thing. And now it's people are settling in a little bit. And I try to kind of, I read a ton and I try to get a sense of where people's heads are at right now. Are they still in panic mode or are they now trying to be a little more strategic and figure out how to move forward. And so that's, that's why they're feeling topical because they are. I love the topical part because, and you were speaking earlier about individuals that are experiencing success, whether it's during COVID or outside of COVID. So back to your story earlier, you and your family came into significant amount of wealth during a very short period of time. Many young people that are involved with Career Up Now and also outside of Career Up Now and are finding themselves in entrepreneurial positions where potentially they could have massive exits or IPOs. And research shows that so many individuals end up investing that money into donor advised funds. It never necessarily sees the light of day because they're not right. the ones that are active in their philanthropy. For listeners that are hearing this, either those that are aspiring entrepreneurs and or entrepreneurs that are still young that have the potential of making that space, how do we plant the seed for them? And I'm going to ask for those that have already done that, but just have money sitting in donor advised funds, like what made y'all decide not to go that path? So we have a donor advised fund. So... That's an important thing for us. So we've created a new donor advised fund, something called the Progressive Jewish Fund, which is a national fund that has uh, criteria attached to what they will donate, what they will allow checks to go to. They do send checks, all donor advised funds do. And that we think is, is a really great tool because it lets us put all of our fundraising in one bucket. In other words, I can give to all different kinds of organizations, but it makes it really easy. I can do it from an app on my phone. There's a very low buy-in. Most of them, the buy-in is $5,000. Some of it, it's $1,000. Some of them are even less. And that's very compelling. Most people 
think, oh, I don't have enough money for that, but it's great because it does let you just make it really easy to donate. And if you want the tax amount, you want the tax donation, it comes with your annual bonus if you work with a big company or whatever that is, it lets you get the tax deduction in that particular year. It is the bane of every fundraiser's existence, I think, that there's so much money sitting in donor advised funds. Well over, I believe it was about $130 billion that's just sitting there. People have tried to get the money out of it during COVID, but it is some of those funds you don't even know whose they are. They're a different, they're, you know, who they belong to. There's different names used and they are very private. And the big foundation that have these funds within them and control them, the deal is, is that you're not going to say to them, please give to this or please give to that. So it's very hands-off. I don't know that the hands-off should be that hands-off. It should be a little bit more educational about here's some things that you can give to. And that has started to happen a little bit with COVID. Having said that, the donor advised fund vehicle makes a lot of sense, but it does seem to be with people who sometimes people put money in there because they have had an interaction with a fundraiser that was so disappointing and so disingenuous and even offensive that they just say, I don't want to deal with these people anymore. Just put my money in the fund and I'll think about it later. And a lot of people are doing that. So what can we do to make that different is we can make sure that for younger people or even older people who try a donor advice fund, that their first donor advice fund or otherwise, that their very first interaction with a fundraiser is a good one, is a good one, is an honorable one, that the organization that you give to is in touch with you after that, and that you feel good about donating. Because if it's a bad experience, you are much more likely when you get that big bunch of money to put it in the donor advice fund and say, here, let's just let it sit there for a while until I change my mind about fundraising. So that first interaction with a new donor is super, super important. And I hope that everybody realizes that. I hope that fundraisers start to realize that. So you're a woman that is able to, I think the word is, you don't skip a beat. Like you're fast with your answers. And you've always, by your peers, always been considered just an incredibly intelligent and on top of things individual. But that being said, what do you wish you had known when you were the 18-year-old Lisa Greer? One is, I didn't want to believe that, and this is not a pleasant piece to discuss, but I didn't want to believe that gender was an issue. I wanted to believe that everybody in the generation before me was wrong and that women could do whatever they want to do. I wasn't prepared for gender being the issue that it was. I think that's one thing. And not just in corporate structure, but also in philanthropy. I thought if you, if you volunteer at an organization everybody's going to say thank you and it's going to be really great and you're going to be treated well. And, and that really wasn't always the case. So I, I think women's issues, I think the other idea that I was involved at a young age in giving and whatever I could, like I was involved in a political organization and it was you know, little bits of money, but I would give where I could. Oh, one of the things that I didn't know that I was shocked about and still I'm shocked about is that most people don't give. So people will give something, they might donate something, but, but especially Wealthy people who don't give, I have very little patience for. I find that to be really unfortunate. And I don't think it's because they're mean people. I think it's because it just isn't natural for them to give. And for me, it was always natural. It was natural when I was you know, seven and eight years old and I went to go get money for an organization called CARE that was helping children in Africa, I think. And there was one for fresh, what's it called? Uh, uh, not first start, what's uh, kindergarten programs for people I think who- Head Start. For Head Start, I didn't even know what it was. I was like nine, but it just seemed natural that that was something that you should do. And I was very surprised. If someone told me that if you have money, you don't give, that would have just been shocking to me as a kid. 
And I, it's still kind of shocking to me now, but now I think I know one of the reasons, and I think one of the reasons is that it's just not a good experience. And so I'm dedicated to making people, teaching the world, teaching the fundraisers of the world and the nonprofits of the world to make that a good experience for people so that they will not only want to donate, but they'll continue to donate because they had a pleasant experience doing it. What's one value that you hold dear, whether in your personal or professional life? If I had to pick one, I think it would be integrity or honesty. I can't decide between the two and they're very similar. I think being kind and being honest. And a lot of people say to me, and some people are saying to me with this book and with my Twitter feed and with my newsletter, that sometimes I'm a little bit too honest and uh, too direct. But I feel like if I don't do that, if somebody doesn't say, hey, wait a minute, everybody wake up. There's, you can make this better. There's things that you can do to make this better then people won't. And so somebody has to kind of be there. I also think that people don't tend to believe you if you don't feel it with your whole being. And so that's where the integrity comes in is that I think my trying to get people to donate to organizations I'm part of or come with me and volunteer for something I'm doing. And I started doing this when I was 17 years old and I was in a sorority and I said, come see all these cultural events and people didn't want to see the cultural events. I didn't expect everybody to do it, but if I got a few people, I was really happy, but I did it because I felt passionate about it and I felt your body and soul like that was the right thing to do. And I think that I'd like to see more of that in this world. And um, it makes me sad when there's fundraisers at organizations who are really just there for the job and really don't believe in the cause. I, I think that's a real problem. So I think it's all about, it's that integrity and honesty. Sorry, I picked two. Oh, it's good. I mean, while you were saying integrity and honesty and kindness, something that came to mind is your, a way to describe you is you're an igniter, meaning whether your newsletter being Philanthropy 451, whether your book being a philanthropy revolution and really pushing that envelope there like you're a fire starter like you get things going and which leads me to my next question which is a gestalt theory question and outside of fire lighting but if you were a part of a bicycle what part would you be and why i think i would be the wheel because and maybe this is an answer other people would say but a wheel you can't ride a bicycle without a wheel. So it's, it could be a fast bicycle or a slow bicycle or an electric bicycle, but you always have to have a wheel. That just has to be part of it. And also a wheel being round, it reminds me of sort of like the world. I think I have opportunities throughout the world and I, I don't really stop at anything. And I also really believe that if you knock on a bunch of doors, someone told me this once and one of them doesn't open, you just go find another door. And I think that's with all the spokes of a wheel. There's, if one of the spokes breaks, there's always other spokes and you can go find other places to go and they all go in different directions and that's really great. And I've gone in a lot of directions in my career. I did want to mention to your fire starter thing. It's very interesting. No one's ever called me that before, but I think that some people would use that as a demeaning word to describe me because some people just don't like that. Uh, obviously I called my blog Philanthropy 451 because I think a fire is a way of saying, hey guys, wake up. There's something you have to do. But a lot of people don't like change. And a fire starter means somebody's going to start something with a spark and it's going to make change. And I'm hoping that we can change some of that through the stuff that I'm doing. Well, I know you already are and you already have. And now with your book, which is coming out, people can put in pre-orders now. It's for sure going to change the way society thinks about fundraising. And I'm excited to celebrate 
many successes with you. Thank you. It's also available to download on as an ebook starting next week. So oh. uh, you pre-order that and people can get them next week. Yeah. Very, very Amazing. exciting. I'm super excited for you. I, I want to thank you for joining us today for Career Up Now Socially Distance Close Up and wish you tremendous success in all of your forthcoming endeavors. Thank you. Same to you and same to Career Up. Take care.